Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's what I taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the car. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, throw some spaghetti against the wall. This is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited for this week's episode because as I'm recording this, I am getting ready for a very special presentation that I'm going to be giving at Archon. Uh, For those of you who are not in the St. Louis, Illinois area, Archon STL is a really fun independent convention that I've been to several times already since 2015. Always had a blast when I was there. And they are always open to collecting different presentations, different panels to uh, for for the for the people that are there. And I have participated in quite a few panels since I started going there. I was actually part of one in 2015 that talked about the various options when it comes to publishing, whether you want to just do the self-publishing route, whether you want to reach out to a small press or one of the bigger presses, or if you are a hybrid, as I am, someone who has done both self-publishing and has the uh, as and has had other works published by uh, some small presses over the years. And I'm going to be giving some news about that in the coming weeks as well. So I just wanted to kind of let you know that. Uh, but I've also done presentations on National Novel Writing Month. I've done a presentation about how to start up a podcast. Um, I've done presentations on audiobook narrating. It's always a lot of fun being there. I love the the feel of the place. I have sold quite a few books there as well in my time there. And I'm going to be there this weekend. I won't be there on the first day. The first day is going to be I, I'm, I'm at work. It's going to be a very busy day for me over there on September 30th. But I will be there October 1st and October 2nd. And it's on October 1st at 6 p.m. when I'm going to be presenting a, a topic that I didn't realize I was really passionate about, something that I really wanted to expand on, and it's called When James Bond Saved Spider-Man. And for those of you who have not listened to my other podcast, From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios, I got a special treat for you for this week's episode of Excelsior Journeys because this topic really grew during the time that I was getting ready to present the episode of From Duck Till Dark that centered around the 2002 Spider-Man film. For those of you who don't know me, I am an absolute sucker for behind-the-scenes info with movies. Um, I love all those real meaty stories about how different ideas start out and then they go into development hell and then they get twisted and turned and find their way to eventually become what they are on the screen. And it's 
whenever there's whenever there's a real good like meaty saga to it, then I am just all over it. And during my research, during the time that I was uh, right before I recorded the episode regarding the 2002 Spider-Man, there were a few things that I looked back on, and one of them was. Um, was this great book called uh, Spider-Man Confidential, and it's an unauthorized look um, at the evolution of the character and his run through all these different, um, all these different multimedia in- incarnations. Uh, it's by Edward Gross. For uh, if you, if the name Edward Gross sounds familiar, then you know of all the different books that he and his partner Mark Altman have done over the years. And they're all about different, di- different behind-the-scenes stories. Um, you know, there's the there's the magnum opus that they did, the two-parter, all about the 50-year odyssey of Star Trek. There is the there's one that they have for Star Wars from the making of that. There is a, a an amazing, uh, very detailed look back through all of the. Um, I think it was either 23 or 24 of the Bond films. Um, and all that's I'm, – I'm, I love those. I absolutely love the, those types of books. And I was – I just, you know, just couldn't stop collecting as much information about this. I wanted that episode to be something really special. And it turned out it was. It wound up being my favorite episode of the entire run of From Duck Till Dark. And it gave me an idea to really go a little bit further into it because there were so there were not only a lot of different twists and turns when it came to the Spider-Man development, but there were just as many, if not more, actually I would say there were a lot more, for the 2006 film Casino Royale, which was the first of the Daniel Craig era. And it was also an attempt to basically kind of reboot James Bond himself and take him back to his first mission, his first big mission, which is what Casino Royale is all about. Casino Royale was the literally the book that got away from Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. And it's it was such a saga for them to eventually get the rights to do that story legitimately. And it had gone through so many different iterations and so many different attempts to get it on the screen. And at the end of the day, it wound up being the main thing that really kind of pulled Spider-Man out of this rut in development hell over with MGM um, because he he was one of – Spider-Man was one of many properties from Marvel Comics that was – um, as as it was said, incredibly undervalued. They didn't realize just how much that that character was going to be worth, and so it wound up going through one one different iteration after another at Canon Films of all places. And this is after it made a run of being optioned with New World Pictures with Roger Corman. And nothing had happened over there and nothing had happened over at Canon. And then uh, Menachem Golan was able to hold on to that, to the rights a little bit longer when he took it um, along with other properties to his new company, 21st Century Film Corporation, after Canon Films imploded after 1987. 
Um, and so it took a, a very important deal that uh, that took place in the courts for both James Bond and Spider-Man to kind of get themselves in a position where they could really make a run and get on the big screen the right way. And it was the deal for James Bond that wound up being the saving grace for Spider-Man. So I decided I wanted to put together a really fun presentation that really that really delved into that. So if you are in the St. Louis area, then I look forward to seeing you at Archon. Again, it's going to be on Saturday, October 1st at 6 p.m. I am going to be there. Um, there. There will be a visual presentation. Um, it's going to be a whole lot of fun. And I am going to be – I'm still putting the whole thing together, but I am confident that it's not going to be just this um, – Wikipedia regurgitation of all these different facts. I'm trying to make sure that it's as entertaining as possible and that you guys are going to have a lot of fun learning about all these different behind the scenes shenanigans. And there are quite a few different players that uh, that took part in this whole mess that took place behind the scenes. There were so many messes that took place even before the character of Spider-Man was even created. So everything is going to be going in this chronological order, starting from the time when Ian Fleming first wrote Casino Royale all the way to 2006 when the movie itself is released. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope you will enjoy it. And for this episode of Excelsior Journeys, what I decided to do was present the episode that really was the catalyst for getting all this going. You're going to hear the episode of From Duck Till Dark outside the Marvel Studios that focused on the 2002 Sam Raimi film Spider-Man. And who knows, if you enjoyed, if you wind up enjoying this episode, then please go ahead and go to fromducktilldark.captivate.fm so that way you can listen to the whole thing. You can also go to he's got it.com slash podcasts, and you can go ahead and find it there as well. Um, next week is going to be the four-year anniversary episode of Excelsior Journeys. I still can't believe it's gone that far. And what I decided to do was set up a little Q&A. And I've already gotten a couple of questions already. I look forward to talking about those going into those different stories that are there. And I have a really big announcement to make about the future of Excelsior Journeys. And there is one hell of a future that uh, that this show has. So I hope you enjoy the episode of From Duck Till Dark. I look forward to all of your feedback. And please reach out to me with any sort of questions. You can find me all over social media. And until next week, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward, welcome to From Duck Till Dark, outside the Marvel Studios. An audio celebration of the films based on Marvel Comics characters released before and during the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Enough said. Face front, true believers, this is George Soroy, and welcome to a 
very special episode of From Duck Till Dark outside the Marvel Studios. This is part of my contribution to the National Podcast Post-Month Challenge, which is recording, editing, and posting a 10-minute or longer podcast episode every day for 30 days. And we're up to the episode that I'm always, always, always thrilled to do. And that is talking about the 2002 film Spider-Man. Now, granted, I'm not like the biggest Spider-Man fan in the world. There are like, I do love the character. It is someone that I grew up watching, especially on Spider-Man and his amazing friends when I was in uh, kindergarten and, and so on. But I am such a sucker for behind the scenes stories when it comes to movies. And Boy, are there a lot of behind-the-scenes stories for this one. Spider-Man himself was someone who had very unexpected beginnings. He was someone that uh, when Stan Lee and when Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko put that together, put the character together, he was originally met with a lot of skepticism from publisher Martin Goodman over in Marvel, and. So he wound up not even getting his own comic right away. He wound up being he wound up being given the starring role on the last issue of Amazing Fantasy, which was a an anthology series that really wasn't doing very well. And so that particular issue, they were going to cancel that that line, so they decided why not just put him in there. There it's not like anything was going to be happening with that with Amazing Fantasy after this anyway. So that winds up being the place where Spider-Man's origin story was told. And boy, did it sell like gangbusters to the point where almost immediately Martin Goodman gave the green light to give Spider-Man his own comic and they were off and running. Now, in the 80s, that was during a time when Marvel was really, really anxious to get their properties out there as much as possible, especially considering how they had seen the success with Superman, how that how that 1978 film became an instant classic, how the 1981 sequel did very, very well, and in a lot of cases wound up eclipsing the uh, first movie in terms of quality. And even though it was not a huge success in terms of quality, Superman 3 still made over $100 million. And... Um, so, yeah, Marvel was really, really anxious to get into the game. And they entrusted a lot of the rights to their characters with with producer Roger Corman. He was discussed already on this show by especially talking about the Fantastic Four and how that, so that 1994 project just did not make it to theaters. So one of those other characters that Roger had was Spider-Man. But what he wanted to do with this one, he wanted to do it right. He wanted to set him up over at Orion Pictures with Dr. Octopus as the main villain. And they're looking at a budget of about $25 million. So it seemed like things could possibly wind up going going pretty well. However, those rights wound up getting bought out from Roger Corman by Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus of Canon Films. And they were basically looking to bring in any sort of viable properties that they could in order to give themselves an extra leg up and really kind of establish themselves as as real players in Hollywood. The problem is 
is that uh, Canon Films was notorious for being for being schlockmeisters, you can say. Like they there's a whole lot of talk about them on the really great documentary Electric Boogaloo. And they they were especially Menachem Golan was they were very very anxious to get out there and make themselves known by getting as much established properties as possible. And unfortunately, Menachem Golan did not know much about the character and insisted that the story that they were going to tell was be kind, going to be kind of like a, a werewolf type of story. And they had a writer involved. I think it was uh, Leslie Stevens. And the idea was that he was – that uh, Peter Parker was going to be the subject of an experiment that was going to turn him into a large insect and basically just be like kind of phasing back and forth with that. They had gotten Toby Hooper on board with the project. And then later on, Joseph Zito, who would direct Missing in Action and also Invasion USA for Canon. And he was also very well known for directing Friday the 13th, the final chapter. So he was involved. Michael Dudikoff was involved, the American Ninja. He was in line to play the character. And there was also originally the budget that they were looking at was about the same, about $25 million. Unfortunately, around 1987, when when Canon wound up breaking down, reducing the budget for Superman 4 from about $35 million to about just over $15 million, and they couldn't even make that much money back at the box office for a Superman sequel. Obviously, some things were definitely going awry there. So they had to reduce the budget down to $7 million, and Joseph Zito walked. He left the project. Albert Pion came aboard for a while to to facilitate things, and he would later go on to direct Captain America. But he's someone who definitely is someone who is, who is used to working with uh, very, very small budgets. So it was a good thing that he was on board. And they also had brought in a writer by the name of Ethan Wiley. He had pitched this idea about Peter Parker slowly becoming Spider-Man and finally being him at the end. And that was the means of trying to stretch things out long enough so that way they don't have to spend millions and millions of dollars on one big action sequence after another. He can just slowly work his way up into finally becoming Spider-Man for the climax. And so that was that was an idea that was being that was being explored the whole time. Stan Lee was getting really really upset about all the different directions that were going on. Jim Shooter, the editor in chief at Marvel, was also very adamant about wanting to wanting to get them to reel things in and really kind of pay attention to the character and really create something that was faithful to that character. Eventually, when Canon Films wound up collapsing and. Um, and Golan actually left Yoram Globus and started his own company, 21st Century Film Corporation. And he was able to take the rights of Spider-Man with him. And then for extra cash to really get things going, he sold the TV rights for Spider-Man to Viacom. Then he sold the home video rights to Columbia Pictures. And then the theatrical rights to Carol Co. Productions. And Carol Co., they had a real big ace up their sleeve because they were the home for James Cameron. Carol was the studio responsible for Terminator 2. And then the next year, they would release Basic Instinct. So they were riding a pretty good wave right there, right at those the early 90s. And Cameron was really 
um, really anxious to work on Spider-Man. He had put together what they call a scriptment. So it was a combination of a script and a treatment. And he, what he had in mind was bringing in his, as his villains, Electro and Sandman. And it was going to be like a $50 million budget. And things were, things seemed to be kind of going into development there. The main thing that he was able to bring in, the main thing that he was able to change when it came to the character, Peter Parker, he was, it was a uh, a faithful reintroduction to the character of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. The main thing that he did, the main a little twist that he did, he made the web shooters organic. Normally, it's uh, it's a little cartridge that's attached to his wrist that uh, with uh, a f- film that, uh, that Peter made himself. But the idea that, uh, that Cameron had was he made them organic. So they immediately came out of his wrists. And so that's something to remember for later on. During all of this, while Carol Co. was really kind of ramping up production, uh, Menachem Golan sued Carol Co. for trying to make the film without him. And with the, with all the different litigations going back and forth, and Cameron eventually left the project. He went ahead and decided he was going to do Titanic instead. And he even had Leonardo DiCaprio in mind to play Peter Parker. So that's that would have been a very interesting thing. And it was around the early 90s, around that same time, that was when MGM acquired the assets of 21st Century Film Corporation. So they they would eventually wind up getting all of those and all of the, and most of the rights to the other canon films. I think it was all the, all the ones that Golan was able to kind of bring with him when he broke away from Yoram Globus and the rest of canon. While all this is happening, there's another franchise that was dealing with its own issues. And this is something that goes back quite a few decades. And this franchise was James Bond. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up James Bond right now is because there is a real big element that adds to all of this mess that's going on behind the scenes. And it all centers around one guy. And it's not Ian Fleming. It's Kevin McClory. Kevin McClory was a producer and a uh, screenwriter who befriended Ian Fleming during the time when the struggle to bring James Bond to the big screen wasn't really getting much traction. And so McClory and, and another, and another writer, another gentleman that came in, Jack Winningham, they wound up teaming up with Ian to put together a screenplay it was an original screenplay that was going to be like the real good springboard to get James Bond on the big screen. And it wound up being like this undersea adventure that would eventually wind up being Thunderball. And unfortunately, while they were coming up with this idea, all these different ideas, there were a lot of drinks during their meetings and everything and a lot of late nights to the point where they when uh, when all was said and done, no one could really decide on who came up with what. And so what wound up happening was Ian Fleming in his of a very in a very not bright move on his part, he took all all those elements that they had been working on and put them all into his book that would eventually be Thunderball. And he opened the door to get himself sued for plagiarism. 
And Kevin McClory had no problem doing that. And he wasn't going to let go of Bond because he believed that with all the elements that went in there, he had just as much of a right to the character as Ian Fleming. So eventually there was a settlement where Ian was able to publish the book. However, it was Kevin McClory who would have the film rights to it. He would be the one to be credited as producer. And it was during that whole back and forth a lot of people say that that's what contributed to Ian Fleming's eventual heart attack that would kill him. And so originally, Kevin had sat on those on those rights. And once Ian Fleming died, that was when Broccoli and, and uh, Saltzman came aboard and they wound up teaming up with Kevin McClory to get Thunderball on the big screen. However... As part of the deal, Kevin was list, was credited as a sole producer and Broccoli and Saltzman were listed as executive producers. And there was nothing that they can do. That was part of the deal that was done with Ian Fleming with the courts. And so not only was Kevin McClory the sole de facto producer of this movie, which wound up being the biggest success out of all of them to date, but the deal also gave Kevin McClory the right to remake Thunderball after a period of time. And he definitely pounced on that when the time came. And that would be in the early 80s when he took his project over to Warner Brothers and coaxed Sean Connery into coming out of retirement of playing James Bond. He was still acting, obviously, but uh, but he wound up bringing him back and that became Never Say Never Again. And... In addition to being able to remake that one, in, in addition to be able to remake Thunderball, he was also given the right to make sequels. And after quite a, quite a while, he was able to revisit that option. And so it was in the mid-90s, that's when he started really ramping up his idea, working with Columbia Pictures to put together a little package deal and make a rival Bond series with Columbia Pictures, who also had the rights to Casino Royale, the first book that Ian Fleming wrote for James Bond. And it was kind of like the the one that got away for Cubby Broccoli. So he, unfortunately, he did not live to see that movie get into a full production other than that spoof movie that was done in the 1960s, which barely had anything to do with Casino Royale. And so... There was a whole lot of back and forth with that, and MGM was getting involved and wanting to stop them from moving forward with with, uh, with that sequel. The sequel would eventually be known as Warhead 2000, and Kevin was able to – was working on getting Timothy Dalton to come back and be his rival Bond. But eventually, things wound up falling apart there, and Kevin wound up losing eventually his rights to James Bond. And so Sony was able to – Sony had those rights and they made a little settlement with MGM. And that settlement was MGM would get the rights to Bond, Casino Royale, everything under the Kevin McClory umbrella. So that way everything would be with MGM, with Eon Productions. It would all be there. And in return, MGM, which – owned the assets for 21st Century Film Corporation, 
would give Sony the rights to Spider-Man. And all of that happened in March of 1999. So this has been like over a decade in the making with all of this stuff that was going on, all the back and forths, all the amazing um, behind-the-scenes stories. And finally, in 2000, that's when Sam Raimi came on board to be the director. And he had put together, he had overseen a screenplay that David Kep would write. And David Kep has had done a lot of work for himself and done very well. He had worked on the first two Jurassic Park movies. He had done a really great film called The Paper. If you haven't seen that, by all means do. It's a really, really, uh, really, really good movie. And Michael Keaton, Glenn Close, Robert Duvall, Randy Quaid, really Marissa Tomei, just a, a hell of a movie. Really funny, really just a really good New York-y type of movie. I, I took it. I took to it pretty quickly. I loved it. But he had also done, back in the mid-90s, he had done The Shadow, which I think like would could use a director's cut of its own. And so, but he wound up commission. he wound up writing the screenplay that teamed up both The Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus. And thankfully, that draft really didn't go anywhere. He still had the organic web shooters. Kep was able to keep that from the James Cameron scriptment. And, but at the same time, a Having read that screenplay, I'm really, really glad that it didn't go anywhere because there was a lot of very corny comic book style dialogue from like the 1960s where the Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus were not only teaming up against Spider-Man, but also turning against each other. And it was was, just seemed to be a bit of a mess. Thankfully, there was a they were able to break it down and and give uh, keep everything very basic. Now, with all that. With uh, to- you know Toby Maguire, Willem Dafoe coming on board, and everything else that uh, that went into that, what were my thoughts on the actual movie after all of this time and all these different behind the scenes things? I really, really enjoyed it. I was really taken by all the acting. I think the acting was superb all all across the board. Obviously, Toby. Toby Maguire was was great as he was great as Peter Parker, and he was a solid Spider Man. Willem Dafoe was a perfect Green Goblin and Norman Osborn. J.K. Simmons, God bless him. The man was J. Jonah Jameson incarnate. Like it was it was amazing the way that he the, the way that he captured that character. Everyone involved was was terrific. Cliff Robertson as Uncle Ben, I thought was great. And I I was yeah, overall I was really, really happy with it. Now, it wasn't perfect. There were a lot of what I like to call cringeworthy moments. Uh little Little moments where just like the dialogue just seemed so comic booky that it just kind of like took me out of the movie happened quite a bit, especially during the second half. But that first hour, my God, that was that that's as close as you can get to comic book movie perfection. And it was just done really, really well. The way that the the way that Peter got got bitten by the spider, by the feeling the effects, the way that he did. Just, oh God, it was so it was just so good. Like everything was put put together so so well, and having that with great power comes great responsibility moment. I thought was 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 perfect, and the the way that he had to deal with Uncle Ben and dealing with the guilt that followed. I mean, it was it was all just it was all just right there. The second half, like it it did seem to kind of lag a little bit. There were some 
like I said before, quite a few cringeworthy moments. Yeah, I know, like, especially there are moments like the Green Goblin and Spider-Man on the rooftop. That that scene just kind of yeah, it came off as really, you know, less lesser than than what it should have been. And the the moment that led up to that with with Green Goblin to go like sleep and going back to Green Goblin really quickly. One thing that really kind of, you know, took me out of this was the fact that early on in the movie you get to see someone using like a showing off the glider and showing off the suit and it looked almost demonic right from the start. And I felt like they should not have done that. I felt like there should have been just like a typical, like a good glider and and a, and a good tactile like bat, battle armor for the suit. And after he was after Norman Osborn took that formula and went through it and became this insane goblin type of character, it should have been he should have seen like those moments, like kind of those. He should have definitely seen like himself as as a goblin, like looking at himself in the mirror and modified the suit to reflect that. That's how I felt they should have done that. Overall, I thought I thought the whole the whole thing was really, really good. Very, very strong. Like I said, I had its share of cringeworthy moments. There was definitely the that rah, rah, New York. You mess with one of us. You mess with all of us. There was too much stuff that was right on the nose. But overall, for what Sam was trying to convey, I thought was, I, I I thought he definitely accomplished what he set out to do. So, if you haven't watched Spider-Man 2002 in a while, I strongly recommend you do, especially considering everything that's going to be happening in December with Spider-Man No Way Home, Sony Pictures, in their infinite wisdom, and this for by saying that I'm being serious. They're smart enough to see that they have some serious assets with the Spider-Man movies that came before the ones that are now tied in with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So definitely give Spider-Man 2002 a look. High recommendation for it. And I am just really excited for this time. And also, just to note, um, the world was ready for Spider-Man in 2002. And you could see that in the box office because... Out of all of the Star Wars films that came before it and some of the ones that came after it, they were they were always those Star Wars films were always the top money maker of the year that they came out, except for 2002. And the reason why they came in second instead of first was because of Spider-Man. And so that's big. That's really big. The fact that they that he was able to take on Star Wars and beat them, that's that's huge. So that's all I got to say about this one. Like I said, I was really, really excited to talk about this one because I am such a sucker for behind-the-scenes stories, and here we are. This one has gone a lot longer than the other ones, but I think, I hope that you've enjoyed this one. And I'm always looking forward to your feedback, so please go ahead and go to facebook.com slash dark. If you have any suggestions or comments or anything, please feel free to email me at george at he'sgotit.com. And if I missed any information, if you wanted to, there's anything that, uh, that you have as a correction or anything like that, please go ahead and, and feel free to let me know. A lot of credit 
goes to not only Wikipedia, but also to Edward Gross, the uh, the pop culture author who wrote this great book called Spider-Man Confidential. And there's a whole section in there about bringing Spider-Man to the big screen. Uh, so definitely check that book out. And I am just, like I said, I'm excited to be talking about this one. And I hope that you have enjoyed hearing me talk about this one. And so until next time, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward and Excelsior. I'll see you again soon. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com. 